Hello, I am Juan Carbona. I am a social studies teacher at Donna High School, a dual enrollment his history instructor for South Texas College, and the author of The Alton Bus Crash. Hello, I'm Ariana Luna, and I'm a recent graduate of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley with a bachelor's in history and a bachelor's in Mexican American studies, and I was also in Mr. Carbona's first Mexican American studies class at Donna High School. To begin with, we would like to welcome you all and thank you for giving our little podcast a try. As lifelong residents of the Rio Grande Valley, we grew concerned as to how the outside world viewed our border community, and what we seek to do with this podcast series is to provide the rest of the world, and maybe even residents of the Rio RGV, an exploration of life here on the border and the history of our community. It will be through this series using historical research, interviews, anecdotes, folklore, and tales specifically from within our community, we hope to highlight the vibrant life and culture of the Rio Grande Valley. As historians, we cannot ignore the present day, for our study allows us to have a better understanding of what is occurring in the world around us. As a result, we began to work on one podcast, but as our country is once again seeing protests against state-sponsored violence, hardline immigration policies ripping children from families, and denials of the right to asylum, we decided to change gears and address the historical role the history of the Rio Grande Valley has to say about what we are seeing. To that end, our first episode is about a dark chapter of Valley history, which has been gaining some light through the works of different groups, in particular a group of professors who formed the group Refusing to Forget, whom we'll, we will further discuss later in this podcast. The time period we will begin with is what has become known as La Matanza, or The Killing. One scholar who has been researching and writing on this historical event is my brother, Dr. Christopher Carmona, a professor at University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and author of Valerinche, young adult Chicano superhero novel series, which takes place during this time period. So was an, um, a term that was used by historians and scholars to refer to a time frame between approximately 1910 to 1920, where anywhere from hundreds to thousands of Mexican, Mexican-Americans were murdered by Texas Rangers and others, um, mostly in a land grab. Then, um, as Benjamin Johnson refers to it in his book, Revolution in Texas, the last colonization of the U.S. mainland. And it was an attempt, which was successful, to transform the land from ranching to agriculture, which is now referred to as terraforming. Um, at the time, though, most of the lands, if not all of them, were owned and maintained by Mexican-American families primarily five five major families and those families ended up selling off parts of they're all part of the Spanish land grant system and so they would sell off parts or give parts of away to their family members so when um, in 1905 when the the governor of Texas issued the Rio Grande land land and irrigation company a grant to change the terraform the lands here they hired people like the Texas Rangers to terrorize the, the landowners out of their property. Um, different methods from straight up lynchings, murders, to um, unscrupulous law practices for they would destroy tax records and then such to basically swindle these, land, these people out of their lands and establish an irrigation system that went from Brownsville all the way to Zapata. So how did you get started in all this research? I started uh, with the research when I, was, when I was a kid, and my grandfather used to tell me the stories of the Vinches or the Texas Rangers when 
when he was young. And so hearing the stories growing up, um, the, that always was an interest of mine. When I got older and I was uh, at a Latino literature conference and I was speaking with a friend of mine who uh, teaches at UTSA and uh, we were talking about uh, the Texas Rangers because she was also from Brownsville. And uh, she had a graduate student of her, with her who was from UCLA and she was a Chicano Studies major. She told us that she had never heard these stories before. And so that set me on the path to start to tell these stories, to get these stories out there because it became very clear that these stories were not being told and that this history was being forgotten. Um, you've done some research into um, uh, intergenerational violence. Can you explain what that is and how that affects different communities? Intergenerational trauma is really a term that's used in the psychological community. It's used to um, really to discuss and treat uh, children, usually adolescents and younger children who are affected by the circumstances. So usually um, when we look at intergenerational trauma, it's traumas that happened two or three generations before the person is affected by them. And when someone is affected by traumas that they did not experience themselves, they just begin to exhibit specific symptoms such as PTSD, uh, drug addiction, um, anxiety, um, even medical treatments such as diabetes and other such medical cures. So about seven or eight years ago, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who is a, uh, also a psychological ther uh, researcher, looked into DNA coding and how our DNA coding is affected. So she was the first to discover what is called epigenetics. Epigenetics are genomes um, encoded upon the DNA strand. And every time someone experiences a trauma, those genomes mutate and those genomes are then transferred from generation to generation. And so when we get down to usually what she was studying was Holocaust survivors and their and the grandchildren. So the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors were never told the stories of the Holocaust, but they would exhibit symptoms of a survivor of the Holocaust. And so this is when she first started to look into what was happening physiologically and discovered what we call now call epigenetics, which are these genetic codings that that's basically form on top of our DNA code and mutate the DNA code and therefore travels from generation to generation. And so violence is one of the major triggers for intergenerational trauma. And this has been studied primarily with Holocaust survivors, indigenous communities, and more recently with African Americans and slavery. When looking at what happened with the Matanza, um, which happened two or three generations ago, for some pe most people now, these traumas are still are being exhibited in a lot of the descendants and survivors of these tragedies. So epigenetics becomes something that gets ingrained in our culture and in our psychologies. We mentioned Refusing to Forget earlier. Formed in 2013, its members are Dr. Sonia Hernandez of Texas A&M, Dr. Trinidad Gonzalez of South Texas College, Dr. John Moran Gonzalez of University of Texas at Austin, Dr. Benjamin Johnson of Loyola University, Chicago, and Dr. Monica Munoz Martinez of Brown University. According to the website, this group met at the National Association of Chicano Chicana Studies, Tejas Foco, in San Antonio, Texas, to discuss strategies for commemorating the centennial of the period of widespread state-sanctioned anti-Mexican violence 
on the Texas-Mexico border that happened between 1910 and 1920. In collaboration with Texas residents who have conducted research and maintain invaluable archives, Refusing to Forget is a multifaceted project that seeks to incite public conversations through efforts such as museum and online exhibits, historical marker unveilings, lectures, and curricular materials for public school teachers. It was through their efforts that a monument to La Matanza was placed in San Benito, Texas. The placement of this marker on I-69 East southbound exit 16 parking area southeast of San Benito between FM 732 and Runnels Road has a lot to do with what was going on at the time. One of the many practices of the Texas Rangers is that they would pick up prisoners from Harlingen and take them to the courthouse in Brownsville. San Benito is a town that which lies between the two cities and somewhere along the way their prisoners would, according to the Rangers, evaporate. One person who stands out as someone who tried to do the right thing during the time was Cameron County Sheriff W.T. Van, who traveled to Austin to try to prevent Texas Governor Ferguson from dispatching a large group of rangers to the Rio Grande Valley. The sheriff saw the, their presence as creating more animosity within the community and he knew their violent nature would only serve to create a reign of terror in the valley. Van went so far as to instruct his deputies not to turn over prisoners to the Texas Rangers. Ariana and I traveled to this marker in order to stand and listen to the ghosts of the past. Being, al being along the highway, you get the constant sound of cars as they whip by the area. A sound which would not have been present in 1915. But what was present in 1915 was the high grass, the trees, the brush, and the strong breeze blowing through the area. One can feel the breeze blow through them as it would have those who lost their lives at the hands of the supposed keepers of the law and protectors of Texans. But for hundreds or perhaps thousands of Mexicans or Mexican-Americans, they were their tormentors serving the white power structure that had come to supplant themselves in South Texas. Ariana, what does learning about this history mean to you? So this history means a lot to me first because I didn't know about it at all until I took Mexican-American studies in high school. I was shocked but also really sad that this was kept for me. Like, why would I have to wait until I was 17 to learn this when I've taken two U.S. History College courses already? It was mind-blowing. It was also super important to me because it is my history. This is something that happened to my people, mi valle. I consider them my relatives because it's the valley. We're a small and tight-knit community. That could have been my great-grandfather or my great-uncle, and truthfully, I see my family and the victims because they look like me. I love the valley, and knowing this history does not make me love it any less. It probably makes me love it more because, and be more proud of it because we overcame that and we survived such a dark time. They wanted to murder us all or drive us all away, but we stayed and we survived. It also makes me more protective of the valley because we deserve so much more than what we were put through. And I'll fight to make this place a better place for everyone living here. If education helps me make that happen, then I'll do it. I want to spread this information around like a wildfire. And not just this history, but also the good, happier history. But knowing true, unfiltered history, no matter how dark or scary, means a lot to me because we can recognize ourselves in major events in history. Knowing that we were present in American history helps us navigate current problems within our own communities because then we know where the problems stem from. We then traveled to San Manuel, Texas, to the site of a second historical marker placed in the Rio Grande Valley by refusing to forget. This marker is located across the street just north of the famous San Manuel Chorizo factory. It is dedicated to two prominent Mexican-American citizens, Jesus Bazan and Antonio Longoria. Longoria was a 
Hidalgo County Commissioner and certified school teacher. In short, he nor Bazan were bandits. They were actually murdered after reporting some stolen horses to a group of Texas Rangers led by Captain Henry Ransom. Shortly after they left the Sand Lane Ranch where the Rangers were, the Rangers followed them and shot them dead, leaving them to lie by the side of the road. We stood at the marker which was placed there so that their names would be remembered and a testament to the fact that no one was safe from the extrajudicial violence of the Texas Rangers, or Los Rinches, as the Mexican-American community referred to them as. We were aware of the weight of the history upon the Mexican-American community and how a whole generation was subjected to terror and violence that will continue to affect them to this day. Okay, um, and so in looking at, you know, intergenerational violence and, you know, the, the history of things like the Matanza, uh, the, uh, how would uh, how would you say that connects to um, things that we're seeing today, especially the protests going on throughout the whole country? So the rhetoric that was used a hundred years ago is the same rhetoric that was used now to discredit and uh, to basically discredit and vilify Mexican American peoples of the area. And so they used the term a lot back then called bandits, which has been warped and changed throughout time according to the political situation. Um, now they're obviously, as um, Trump has called them, to uh, rapists and drug dealers and such, which is basically the same rhetoric that was used to call them bandits. And that allows people to really um, turn them into mostly symbols rather than people, dehumanize people, so therefore they're easier to kill. So this rhetoric has been used for over 100 years. The Texas Rangers have been in the forefront of this for the past 200 years. They're about to celebrate their 200 celebration in, 20, in 2023. And, uh, until, and so the Texas Rangers have been at the forefront of, especially when going throughout history, even as um, early as the 1960s when the governor called them in to, to stop people from voting. Um, they called, the governor called the Texas Rangers in to stopped um, desegregation in the schools. And so even today, um, the Texas Rangers, which are mostly an investigative unit, are still have operations along the border, which are mostly secret. So. Now, where do you see that having an intersection with the African-American communities? Well, the police violence and the state-sponsored violence that is occurring, has occurred for people on the borders, is systematic of the police culture in this country because the police culture in this country stems from the practices of slave catchers. And slave catchers and the techniques that were used by slave catchers are the same techniques that policing has used for over 150 years now. And so those intersections of really vilifying a population based on skin color, racial reasons, and economic reasons are the same, the same factors that are used when Think about some people like the by the Texas Rangers and local law enforcement, the Border Patrol, um, use in, in attacking, you know, the, the populations around um, the border areas and also around the country. Considering everything we explored in our conversation, you may be asking, what does this have to do with today's situation? As historians, we are trained to recognize patterns, do extensive research, think critically, and make connections. By doing this we can better understand why the world works in reality, 
History is never-ending and it is continuously being made as we speak. I wanted to create this episode specifically because I saw a lot of people on my social media, family and friends, not fully understanding why certain events are happening in our country. With this podcast, I hope to shed light on events that happen in our country and to our people and to help my community better understand them. Knowledge is extremely powerful and I hope what I'm about to say makes sense for those who may not fully understand what is happening. First and foremost, the protests and unrest being expressed by Black Lives Matter protesters is not something that is foreign to us as Mexican Americans. Although we are different demographic groups, some of our struggles overlap because we shared a common oppressor. First, we both have experienced colonization and oppression by the United States. For us, it was the Mexican-American War and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that led to land dispossession, violent intimidation that resulted in lynchings, discrimination, and disenfranchisement. For African-Americans, it was slavery, and after they were freed, they were seen as second-class citizens who were also lynched, disenfranchised, segregated, and discriminated against. Over the years, we both have been called derogatory names to dehumanize us to make it easier to treat us less than human. We have been called mutts, dogs, rapists, bandits, murderers, thugs, criminals, gang members, drug addicts, lazy, unintelligent, servants, and the help, and the list goes on. For Mexican Americans and many other Latinos, it did not stop in 1915. It continued throughout history. This has been recently been highlighted by President Trump in 2016 when he called Mexicans murderers, rapists, and drug dealers. And when BLM protests erupted, he called protesters thugs, thieves, and animals. Instead of protesters, they were labeled as looters and vandals, with no sense of morality or respect for law enforcement. Mexican Americans are no stranger to violent history that resulted from dehumanizing rhetoric and practices. And I think a lot of people are not aware of this. Techniques by law enforcement that were used during recent protests are also no stranger to our demographic groups. Things like tear gas, riot gear, shields, intimidation tactics, rubber bullets, disorientating equipment was used against Mexican American protests in situations like the far riots, farm worker strikes here in the Valley and in California, and against African American protests in Selma on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and in many other civil rights demonstrations. And now, in 2020, these techniques have been amplified and are still being used to make it seem like the protesters in cities across the country are the instigators. In addition to these techniques, federal police were dispatched in places like Portland to help deal with the unrest, yet it only made things worse. In conclusion, the short answer to the question, what does BLM protests have to do with here, us here in the Valley, is everything. It has everything to do with us. We've also been victims of violence, police brutality, lynchings, discrimination, disenfranchisement, segregation, and colonization. Mexican Americans have fought and continue to fight for our civil rights that were granted to us on paper but were never really carried out. African Americans not only fought for their civil rights in the 1960s, but also for us too because we were being left out of government programs, politics, and job opportunities. So when you ask, what does this have to do with me? Just know that you are more connected to the protests that are happening today than you ever have been. And this, con this question may not come from a place of ignorance. Maybe you really don't know, and that's okay. United States history, from my personal point of view, is taught in a very cut and dry method. Events and time periods are taught in a way that it makes it seem like it is over completely with no consequences that follow. But that isn't how it is. History is very complicated that way. And I like to think of it as the greatest story ever told. 
The event that is being studied must also consider what came before it and what became came before that, and so on. And so most of the time, the effects of one event never truly end. That is what is happening today. The BLM protests are not because of one isolated incident. It is a result of 400 years of oppression, discrimination, and racial superiority that has been long overlooked by our country for generations. It is the ugly sore that the U.S. never really wanted to tend to, so instead it festered and erupted when the pandemic exposed its true reality. America is great. It is the land of, the, of great opportunity and wealth. But those opportunities have not always been easy to grasp for some of us. Some of us were born 50 feet from the starting line while others were born 50 feet in front. We had to trudge through mud, over mountains, across deserts, in dark rivers, just to get to where we are, but we made it. It is only until America reckons with its history will it be a country that is able to give all its people what they truly deserve. Most of us did not migrate here, and some of us also did not migrate here by choice. But our roots have been planted here, and we intend to stay here to make this country great. With our next episode, we plan to shift gears towards one staple of life in the Rio Grande Valley, and that's the family barbecue, La Pachanga. We will explore its roots and why these get-togethers mean so much to us. I hope you will tune in. Thanks for listening to Mi Valle, Mi Vida. Goodbye. Bye.